So I'm curious, um, do you have a favorite love song? Do you have a favorite love song? From like when you're growing up, do you have one that's like in your brain, that's back there, that you remember hearing it and it just was always with you? I'm going to totally date myself. Phil Collins, anybody love Phil Collins? Yes, Phil Collins, Against All Odds. A sad song, but for whatever reason, when someone says love song, I think Phil Collins, Against All Odds. That's what I think about. Um, some of you are like, I've never heard that song. If you got two ears and a heart, you got to love Phil Collins, all right? Uh, so I was thinking about this this week. You know, there's no end of love songs. I actually Googled this this week. I asked, how many love songs are there? And if you Google that, uh, the internet makes fun of you. That's what happens. Uh, everybody essentially goes, they're all love songs, moron. Like, stop. That's a dumb question. Don't ask that. So I started thinking through all the different types of love songs that there are. And there's a lot, right? I started thinking about some of the sort of famous lines in, in love songs that there are. Um, see if you recognize some of these. How about Etta James? You all know Etta James? At last. Yeah, we got some clapping going on. There you go. At last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over. Right? And life is like a song. Come on, guys. If you haven't heard Etta James, you need some Etta James. Or how about James Taylor? How sweet it is to be loved by you. Favorite line in that song? I needed the shelter of someone's arms, and there you were. Now, a bonus line in that song, and I think only James Taylor can get away with this. Have you ever noticed? He has a little throwaway line at the end where he says, it's like jelly, baby. That's a weird line. Like, guys, try saying that to your significant other later. Your love is like jelly. It's weird. But James Taylor, when he puts it to music, somehow it works, right? He also says it's like honey to the bees. I don't, that's also a little bit odd, but whatever. How about Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell? Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low. Ain't no river wide enough, baby, to keep me from getting to you. Or how about Elvis Presley? I can't help falling in love with you. Wise men say only fools rush in. So you guys know these. There you go. Good job. Or maybe the saddest love song of all time. Okay, straight from the, the 1980s. Bonnie Raitt's I Can't Make You Love Me. Y'all know that one? Oh, it's, it's heartbreaking for a love song. I can't make you love me if you don't. You can't make your heart feel something. It won't. Oh, have you ever listened? It just is gut-wrenching, that song. It's so, I mean, it just, like if you're, you know, if you're prone to like melancholy, do not listen to Bonnie Raitt. It will hurt your soul. There are probably a lot of conclusions that we can draw from the, just the, you know, the plethora of love songs that are out there, right? That it's, that it's just song after song after song or book after book after book, I mean, about love and what it is to be loved. And, you know, we can draw a lot of conclusions from that, but can we just draw the most obvious one? That it is just part of the human condition, part of the human experience that we long to be loved. Yes? We just, we long to be loved and to know that we're loved and to be loved with a quality of love that goes beyond what we've seen and experienced sometimes in this life. And that's where all those, I really believe that's where all those songs come from. That's why it seems like every song on your radio dial is about love in some form or facet, about not having the kind of love you wish you had or about having a great love that you just can't help but sing about again and again and again. Let me turn you to your attention to Psalm 63. Psalm 63, verse 7. Listen to what God says. This is Isaiah now talking. And he says, 
I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you know what that means? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. What Isaiah is saying there is I will ponder all the manifestations of the love of God over and over and over again. I will count them as if they could be numbered as often as I can think of them, I will recount them. And I will say, let me, you know, I finished counting. Let me start over and let me count again all the ways that God has displayed his love for me. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. That, by the way, is probably my favorite Hebrew word in all of the Bible. This word for steadfast love in the Hebrew. Do you know why it's my favorite Hebrew word? because it means steadfast love, which is awesome, but also because the word is ahava. And it just sounds like aha. It sounds like I am shocked again that you love me. And every time I see steadfast love in the Hebrew Old Testament, I think ahava. I am surprised that God would love me with this kind of love. So maybe that helps you too. You can forget it if it doesn't help you, okay? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. I love that too, because he's saying, I will recount all the reasons to praise God that I have in I will go over them again and again and again, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel. Isaiah is speaking to his people, the people of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his, what's the word there, church? Uh, of his ahava, of his steadfast love. This whole text is Isaiah being determined to recount the steadfast love of the Lord and to remind his people and to remind himself what it means that we are loved by God. What it means that we are Loved by God. Now, I said that it's common to the human condition that we all recognize a need for love in our lives. And one of the things that I think is helpful for us to remember is that our need for love, this space that we find in ourselves that causes us to long for being loved, is evidence of the existence of God. Did you know that? Evolutionary theories have, have pondered and tried to make sense of this deep need that we have for love. And they, they will pin it on the idea that if we are connected to someone else, that we are more likely to survive and they pass on our genetics and all these kinds of things. But none of it can fully explain why we feel such a deep emotional longing to be loved. And the answer, the real answer to that question is we feel a deep emotional need and longing to be loved because we are created by God to experience his love. And so that thing that you feel that says, I want to be loved, that is there by design because God has designed you to experience his love as the ultimate fulfillment of the desire that you feel. feel. Does that make sense? That's why it's there. Because God is speaking to you. You are made to be loved by me. I would also say we easily misunderstand God's love. We forget it. Would you agree with that? We forget what God's love is like. That's why I love what Isaiah is saying here. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. That's Isaiah acknowledging I'm not that good at remembering how good God's love is and responding to his love with, with responsive love towards him. And so I need to recount it. I need to talk about it over and over again. I need to be reminded of what his love is like because I'm quick to forget and I'm quick to misunderstand what his love is like. So I need to ponder 
all the demonstrations of love that God has poured into my life. How often do we do that? How often do you sit down in the morning with your cup of coffee and perhaps a journal or maybe just on the back porch and think to yourself, I'm going to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. I am going, I mean, I think we're pretty quick to sit down with that cup of coffee and tell God all the reasons we might feel not loved. Yes? All the hard things that are going on in our life that we're kind of wondering, what are you doing? And God, I need you to show up and help me. That's good, by the way. God wants us to do that. It's a recognition of our need for him, that we would come to him with those needs. But he also calls us to do this work right here, this Isaiah 63 work. He says, oh, I'm going I'm to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. I'm going to recall that time that I was you know, up a creek and you rescued me. I'm going to recall all the demonstrations and displays of the people that you've put in my life that love me and that I love them and that they're a demonstration of your love. I'm going to recall your steadfast love again and again. So this whole text, Isaiah 63, 1 to 14, is what we're looking at today. And really, I, I'm going to tell you, the first six verses don't seem much like a demonstration of the love of God. Uh, the last 7 through 14 do, but all of it... All of it, because it's one section, is Isaiah actually recounting what God's love is like. And so that's what we've come to do. It's pretty simple, right? We've come to recount what God's love is like today. So that our hearts might leap forward towards him and say, I've never experienced anything like your love. Can we be reminded of God's love today? Let's be reminded. So read with me. Let's just read the whole section now. Isaiah 63, 1 to 14. And then we'll look at it together. Just kind of take it piece by piece. And I want to give you four demonstrations in this text of God's love. Four ways that God demonstrates his love in this text. So starting in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Now the one who's being asked that question says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. 
And he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert they did not stumble, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest." So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, as I said, you read those first six verses and they're, they, they don't sound like love, do they? They're challenging. They speak about the wrath of God. They're actually a reflection of what we find in Revelation chapter 19. It's a foreshadowing. It's Isaiah talking about the same thing that we hear about in Revelation 19 when God comes to judge the nations, all those who refuse to become his children and stay in the status of being his enemies. And even that is a demonstration of God's love. Let me tell you why. So the first demonstration of God's love that we see in this, in these 14 verses is this, is that God shows his love to those who belong to him by getting rid of sin and its destructive effects. By getting rid of sin and its destructive effects. So these first six verses, if you notice at the beginning, it's uh, in the previous chapters, we've seen this idea of a watchman. That God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do all these amazing things. And I want you to watch, like watchmen on the watchtower. I want you to watch for me to come. And so you can imagine now that there are watchmen standing on the watchtower of Jerusalem and saying, we're waiting on God to come. And then the watchmen are asking this question in verse 1. I see someone in the distance coming from Edom and Basra. Edom and Basra. Basra is a city in the nation of Edom. And Edom is... Uh, basically a term being utilized for all the enemies of God. All those who attack God's people, who seek to harm God's people, who are opposed to the purposes of God. That's what that term represents here. And it says, who is this? I'm looking out on the distance and I see someone coming in the, the term for the walk of the person is actually coming with a swagger. In other words, mighty in strength. This person is coming, uh, and he, the watchman sees him in the distance, and he asks the question. Look back at verse 1. He's coming in crimson garments. He is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, or marching in swagger, if you will. And then the response is from, this is again, from the same Messiah, from the same servant, from the same conquering hero that we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah. So it's Jesus, and his response is, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to what, church? Mighty to save, he says. Now he's coming out of the land of the enemies, and he's coming into his people, and he's saying, I am mighty to save. And the person says, why is your apparel red? The watchman, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press, right? The, the idea is, have you been like making wine? What's going on? And the response is, I have been conquering my enemies and my garments are stained with their blood. I have been rescuing you from your enemies all along. Now, again, what the demonstration of God's love is here specifically is that God is saying, I will not allow those who oppose me and harm my people to go unjudged forever. So we heard about in Nigeria, in Joss, Nigeria, northern Nigeria, this last week, 200 Christians slain for their faith. God will not allow that to go unjudged forever. But he is patient. 
He is patient, and he instructs us to love our enemies because he seeks their redemption. But all those who will not turn to him, come to him through faith in Christ, and have their sins covered by the blood of Jesus, will ultimately face the judgment of the wrath of God. And we've seen that again and again in Isaiah, haven't we? We've seen Isaiah say that again and again. So let me just implore you again, if you're here today and you're exploring God, we don't, we don't, we're not really a fire and brimstone church so much, and maybe that's been your experience, but what I want to tell you is that this is a reality that the Scriptures speak to, but everyone who would come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins can receive it, and the blood that will be spilled will not be your own. It will be His on your behalf. You can be covered, you can be covered by the blood of Jesus for your sins. He has sacrificed Himself so that we would not have to experience the vengeance of God. And then to the people of God who have come underneath. Now this is for his people. He's saying, one of the ways I demonstrate my love for you is that all those who oppress you, I will judge one day. All those who harm you, I will judge one day. So by the way, you don't have to. So you don't have to seek revenge. You don't have to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Now, there's something we need to wrap our heads around because as, a, as followers of Jesus, we don't delight that God's wrath will be poured out upon people for their sin one day. We don't delight in that. We don't look to that as something we delight in. But what we do delight in is that God will judge and, and eliminate all sin from the earth one day. And that's really the bigger category here. If God is bringing judgment on his enemies in these six verses and saying to all those who will not come under the protection of the Savior, you will face the wrath of God. What he's, the reason that is occurring is because God is determined to eliminate sin forever and all of its destructive effects. People will face the wrath of God because God has wrath towards sin and people are filled with sin. You follow me? Now here's the thing, church, family, is we so underestimate the destructive effects of sin. And if we really understood the destructive effects of sin, we would see God's promise to destroy it one day as a deep manifestation of his love. Because we would recognize it has been wrecking my life every day for all of my life Every breath is tainted by it, and I'm so sick of it, and I'm so tired of it. I cannot wait till the day that God destroys sin once and for all, when it is done, right? And sin done against us, but also the sin that we commit, right? That, that it will be done. My friends, just think for a minute. Think for a minute about the destructive effects of sin in your own life. I bet it doesn't take you long to think about, think about relationships and how they've been harmed in your life by sin, yours or someone else's. Think about your family. Are there any destructive effects of sin right now that you can think of taking place in your family? My guess is yes. Sin, absolutely. We were made to, to flourish and to thrive in in the image bearing of God that we have as human beings and sin thwarts that at every moment of every day. It hinders it. It prevents it. You do not flourish because of sin in the world and in your life. Now here's the thing. At least one implication of that, right, is like don't dabble with sin. 
it is preventing you from becoming all that God wants you to be. If we thought of sin that way as not something I take pleasure in and therefore I'm going to go and run to because I like it, but if I saw it as something that was actually destroying me and actually keeping me from becoming the thing that God made me to be, would we be less likely to run towards sin? We have to understand it's not something to be trifled with or dabbled in or taken lightly. It absolutely is destructive towards the thing that God has made us to be. You are thwarting the thing that God wants to do in your life by continuing to dabble in sin. Now having this understanding of how destructive sin is and knowing that God is going to completely eliminate it forever, doesn't it make you realize how much God loves you? This is how much God demonstrates his love for his people. He will not allow the destructive effects of sin to go on forever. He will bring them to an end. And that's what these first six verses are about. He will destroy the destructive effects of sin. That's a demonstration of his love. The second demonstration of his love is in verses 8 and, and 10 through 14. And the second one is, again, the question is, how does God demonstrate his love for his people? Answer number two, by claiming them as his forever. By claiming them as his forever. Look at verse 8. He says, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Okay, so God's not a dummy. He knows that they are actually going to deal falsely, Right? But he's saying, I've chosen them. I claim them. They are my people. They are my children. Which is awesome that God is claiming that. Because look down in verse 10 now, after having said that. It says, and he became their savior at the end of verse 8. But then in verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now again, he's speaking from a human perspective and saying, God turned to be their enemy When in fact he's not actually their enemy because he's claimed them as his own, his children. It just appears that he's working against them. But really he's working for their good to bring, to discipline them and bring them back from their rebellion. Because look at verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. And then he goes into uh, allusions to, for the nation of Israel, the most powerful evidence of, of deliverance that God had ever given to them was when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and walked them through the Red Sea and divided the sea so that the Egyptians couldn't conquer them. Do you remember this story from the Old Testament, right? And so he's alluding back to those moments and he's saying, God delivered you. But we need to remember that when the scriptures say God remembered them, does God ever forget anything? Was there anything that God did not already know? So when the scriptures say God remembered, it's just using a human term so that we can understand. It doesn't mean God had forgotten them and then actually was like, oh, 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 yes. Yeah, my people. Okay, I remember them now. I forgot them for a while. All along, God knew that he would demonstrate his steadfast love and his mercy. But from a human perspective, for a season, because of the sin and rebellion of his people, it looked like he had become their enemy. So the, so the writer is saying, He was acting as if we were his enemies. He he wasn't. He was disciplining them so that they would understand. So he looked to be against them when in actuality he was refining them through his disciplinary hand. And so then when it comes into verse 10, 11, it says, and then he remembered, and it talks about all his past faithfulness to his people, the Red Sea and deliverance out of slavery. He remembered that. Again, he never forgot it. He always knew that this past faithfulness would demonstrate itself into future faithfulness to them and for a season 
he acted as if he was their enemy. You follow that? So that's, the text is getting at this idea. He says, I claim you as my own, and no matter what, I will never unclaim you. I will never cease to call you mine. Friends, whatever you have done, wherever you have been, if you belong to God through faith in Jesus, you are claimed by him. He calls you his. And yes, there may be seasons where he is not pleased with your actions, and it may look as if he is operating as your enemy. But that is his hand of discipline to refine you, to bring you into his plan for your life, what he calls you to be. He never forgets you. He does not have to remember in the way you and I have to remember. I have to remember something every week with a note. Like I take notes, right, and remind myself. Anybody have checklists? You have checklists? Because if you didn't have checklists, what would happen? Right? The honey-do list would be forgotten. Right? The, the milk at the store would be forgotten. The whatever, it would just be forgotten. I have too many things on my plate, too many things going on, too many areas I've got my hands in. I cannot remember it all. So I make a list. God does not need a list. He never has to sit down and go, oh, I totally forgot about that project that I was working on. Let me, let me get back to that. He never forgets, and he claims you forever. I was thinking about this. Uh, do you remember being in maybe middle school and like your parents were taking you to hang out with some friends and you wanted them to drop you off a block away because you didn't want to be seen with them? Did y'all have that moment? Some of you are like, I'm in that moment right now, right? The dirty little secret is sometimes parents get so frustrated with the kids, we want to drop them off a block away. We're like, I don't really want to be owned by you either. As much as you don't want to be owned by me, right? Let's disaffiliate from one another. I'm just kidding. Of course not. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, yeah, when I was in junior high, I remember being embarrassed to be dropped off at a party by dad and kind of being like, you maybe give me some space, right? Give me some space, like drop me off a little bit further away, that sort of stuff. And that's a, that's a weird thing, and it's a notion that is the exact opposite of the way God is. He is never embarrassed to call us his children. Now think about that, because there are some times where you've probably done some things that the average father might be a little embarrassed to claim you as their own, Yes? Right? And he says, no, no, no. I'm never embarrassed to claim you. You're my child. You're my daughter. You're my son. No matter what you've done, no matter what you will do, I claim you. Isn't that good? This is the love of God. The third thing that we see in this text about the love of God is that he demonstrates it by sharing the heartache of his people. Look at verse 9. He says this, in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. There's probably four different demonstrations of love. They're being carried by God, being saved by God, you know, being lifted up by God. There's so many demonstrations, but the one that I want you to key in on is where he says, in all their afflictions, he was what? Afflicted. In other words, when you grieve, when you go through hardship, God is not indifferent towards you. He actually feels afflicted when we are, as his people, afflicted. Now, I wonder if you've experienced this. I wonder if you've had moments where when you've gone to pray in the midst of a deep affliction and a deep grieving, 
I wonder if you have experienced this sense that God is there, not just saying it will be okay, but grieving with you, crying with you. Or God is, God is the maker of emotions, right? You know that? And so while we're not led around by emotions, emotions are good things. And God again and again says things about himself, alluding to himself as, as having emotion that he expresses. And so here what he's saying is, when you are afflicted, I share that affliction. I feel your grief with you. I, I enter into it with you. And the thing I wonder is if we haven't experienced that is because we don't actually know that God does that. I wonder if you've ever felt that God does not grieve when you grieve because you weren't sure that God did that. Let me, and here's where this kind of came to roost for me this week as I was thinking about it. Here's what I recognize I'm prone to do as a dad uh, with my kids. I mean, they're young, and often they will experience um, a level of emotion in relation to some situation that is far beyond what the situation calls for. Yes? Sometimes I think to myself, okay, and I'm, as an adult, I can see that this is not ultimately life-threatening. This is, you know, the fact that, like, I've got to eat my broccoli is not that bad. Right, whatever the situation may be, often it feels like, you know, the response, the grief that comes from my children is often beyond what is, you know, should come. In that. And as an adult, here's what I recognize, is uh, I am prone, as a dad, to sort of say, you know, it's really not that bad. Like, and because I have a perspective that is bigger than their perspective, that I see something they don't see and know something they don't know, I'm prone to just kind of dismiss their feelings of grief and just say, you know what, it's really not a big deal. It's going to be okay. Instead of entering into their grief with them. Now, the broccoli is a bad example. Okay, we shouldn't grieve over broccoli. Eat your broccoli, right? But when my daughter is sad because she misses her friends who she hasn't seen for three days, and I'm thinking we're going to see them tomorrow, and it's only been three days, you know, one of the things I'm remembering is that I'm earning the right right now as their dad to hear about their grief when they become teenagers if I handle their grief well now. If I don't dismiss it and act as if it's not real and it's no big deal. But I think that I, I, I will admit I have thought about God this way when I grieve. He has all knowledge and he has perfect perspective and he knows that he's working all things for my good and he knows he's going to redeem it all. So surely when I grieve over the effects of sin in my life or someone else's life, surely when I grieve, he's probably standing at my side just going, you don't have to worry about this. I'm going to make it all right and good in the end. But here it doesn't say he's doing that. There's a place for that, by the way, because are all those things true? Yes, they're all true. But here it just says he actually like comes and sits down next to me and grieves with me. He shares my affliction. What, what does that look like, right? God, who can afflict God? Can anybody afflict, bring harm to God? No. He is beyond being harmed by any created being. So for him to be afflicted means he is owning our affliction and entering into ours. God demonstrates his love for you and for me by sharing our heartache. So an encouragement to us, I think a a right response to that one is kind of like I was talking about with my kiddos, is to remember that it's not always, not every time is the time to go. God is sovereign and it will all be good. That there is a time and a place to sit down and grieve together. 
and just to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, to share affliction with one another. Remember what Romans says, to bear one another's burdens, right? To bear one another's burdens. That's a good thing to remember in the midst of that as an instruction for how we go about it. So the last thing, the last thing here that God gives us about how he demonstrates his love for his people is by seeking his glory through loving his people. By seeking his glory through loving his people. Now remember, we've said again and again throughout Isaiah and throughout many texts that God's chief end, his, his chief ambition is to, is to get glory for himself and that he's right to do so because he's the only being ultimately worthy of glory, right? And that's his chief end. But look at what he says at the end of this text about how that glory is achieved uh, after all that he says about his people and how he delivered them in the past, now in verse 14 he says, Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, which is a good gift. So you led your people, why? To make for yourself a glorious name. You led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. In other words, everything I've said in the past 14 verses about what God has done to demonstrate his steadfast love, all the things that Isaiah is saying, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. All of that is done because God is ultimately ambitious for his own glory. And what glorifies him is to create a people upon whom his steadfast love can rest. And so he loves his people not just for their sake, but for the sake of his own glory. Now, friends, here's what that means. I want you to think about this for a moment. It means that believing deeply that you are loved by God, because I know that even as I say this, I can see it on some of your faces, you struggle to believe that you are loved. You struggle to believe that there is a God who actually could love you with this ahava surprising, shocking, unending, unwavering, steadfast love. And as you struggle to believe that, one of the things you need to recognize is that when we fail to believe that, we are, and I, I don't say this to, this may be bad strategy here because it may sound like heaping more guilt. I don't mean to heap more guilt. But God is ambitious to get his own glory and if his people don't believe that they are loved, convicted that they are loved by God, then we rob him of the glory that is his when he gets glory from getting a people who live as if they are loved by God. Does that make sense? When you believe deeply, are convinced that God loves you, you give him glory. He gets glory when you know that you are loved by him. And he is ambitious for his glory. He will stop at nothing to get it. And he has made a people upon whom he manifests his steadfast love so that he would get glory. Now, I love that. It means a couple things for us. It means a couple things for us. It means we can believe that everything God does in our lives is an act of love. That's hard when we get into the nitty-gritty details of some of the hard things that go on in our lives. But there is nothing that happens in our life outside the love of God. And we can be sure that he will never cease to love us because if he loves us for the sake of his own glory, will he ever stop loving us? Only if he stops seeking his glory and will he ever stop seeking his glory? No, he will not because it is his nature to do so. Well, as we come to communion, let me invite the servers to come.
And I want to do two things. We're going to take communion now. And I think it's so fitting, isn't it, that we would take communion on the day that we talk about the steadfast love of God? Recognize that the cross, which is, as we hold the elements, it's a demonstration of the cross of Jesus and a sacrifice for us. As we hold the elements, we are holding a reminder of that. And church, everything we just said, right? How does God demonstrate his love for his people? Right, let's look at those four things again. How does he demonstrate his love for his people? By getting rid of sin and its destructive effects. Where did that take place? At the cross. How does he love his people? By claiming them as his forever. It's through the cross that we are claimed by him as his sons and daughters, yes? How does God love his people? By sharing their heartache, by taking their afflictions. What is the cross if not God taking our affliction? How does God show his love for his people? By seeking his glory through love. And how, what is the cross but a demonstration of the love of God and, the, and getting glory for the Father? So we come really to an expression of everything we've just talked about, the love of God. Friends, here's the other thing I know. Let me come down. The other thing I know is this. Um, you can't be taught into being convinced of God's love. I could stand up here and I could, I could find every text about love and try and explain them really well to you. And, you know, possessing that knowledge is useful. It's not unhelpful, but it's not ultimately what will convince you that you're loved by God because that's a work of the Holy Spirit and only he can do it. Only the Spirit of God can enter into a person, root himself inside, and convince that person that they are loved. And some of you need that work to take place in your life, I know. Some of you need that work to take place in your life. So I want to invite you as you hold the elements in your hand to invite the Spirit to come and do that work. Just a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, would you cause me to become convinced that I am loved by God? And see what he does. After we sing our closing song, we're going to take communion, then we're going to sing a closing song. And afterwards, I'm going to ask our prayer team to be up here and we want to pray with you specifically, one-to-one, -one, if you just recognize, I, I need the Spirit to do that work. I need the Spirit to impart to me God's love in a way that I just can't get. I, it, there seems to be a block that I'm experiencing to knowing and being convinced that I'm loved by God. We want to pray for you in that. Ultimately, that the Spirit would bring it to pass.